Welcome to the Astro Guy Podcast. I'm not an expert. I'm an amateur like you. I'm here to learn and here to teach. So let's enjoy the ride together. Carpe Noctum. Seize the night. I'm your host, Wayne Zool, and this is the Astro Guy Podcast. This month features most of the naked eye planets ruling the morning sky. So if you're an early riser and you've got a good eastern horizon, the planets will be putting on a nice show. Shortly before sunrise on March 2nd, if you are on the east coast, you might be able to spot Saturn and Mercury separated by about half a degree. You'll need an excellent eastern horizon, and by that I mean you'll probably want to go to the beach to catch it. Using binoculars, try to pick the pair out starting at about 5.45 a.m. Saturn is the brighter of the two, glowing at magnitude 0.79. Saturn will be just over one degree above the horizon at this time. Fainter Mercury will appear below and to the right of Saturn. The pair will quickly get lost in the morning twilight, so you'll need clear skies, a low horizon, and binoculars, and a little bit of luck. For all of this month, Venus and Mars are near each other in the morning sky. If you've been watching this pair, they've been moving closer together, and from the 12th through the 20th of this month, they'll be just about 4 degrees apart from each other. The pair will be easy to spot in the east-southeast. Venus will be shining brightly at magnitude minus 4.35, about 15 degrees above the horizon at around 5.30 a.m. Ruddy Mars will appear below and to the right of Venus. Mars is glowing at magnitude 1.19, which is nearly 100 times fainter than Venus, but you should be able to spot it with the naked eye before twilight begins to interfere. On the 13th, clocks get set ahead one hour for most of the U.S., so you can get up a little later to see some of these events after that. On the 20th, Venus will be at its greatest western elongation from the Sun, rising about two hours before the Sun, so you'll have plenty of time to observe Venus. In a telescope, Venus will show itself as a 50% illuminated phase. As Venus begins its march toward the Sun from our perspective, its phase will continue to grow. Try to spot and track Venus and its phases as it goes through our skies. On the morning of the 28th, we'll be treated to a beautiful sight in the morning sky. Venus, Mars, and Saturn will form a triangle above the east-southeastern horizon at about 5.45 a.m., you should be able to spot the 17% illuminated moon below the triangle, just a few degrees above the horizon. This should be wonderful to see, and later in the year, we'll have some other very interesting lineups of the planets and the moon in the morning sky. In the evenings, Uranus is still visible, low in the constellation Aries. You'll need binoculars or a telescope to spot Uranus. At the start of the month, you can make a right triangle using Uranus, the Pleiades, and the second magnitude star Hamel in the constellation Aries. Neptune and Jupiter are lost in the glow of the Sun for all of March. 
However, both will reappear in the morning skies later in April. The moon is new on the 2nd of March and will be full on the 17th. I wonder, will the moon be green? On March 20th at 11.33 a.m. Eastern, the sun will cross the celestial equator. This is known as the vernal equinox and is the start of spring in the northern hemisphere and the start of autumn in the southern hemisphere. Moving beyond our solar system, we're going to take a look at a wonderful asterism and three lesser known but interesting constellations. Let's explore a beautiful sight that graces the March skies as darkness falls. I'm referring to the asterism called the Winter Hexagon. An asterism is a group of stars that resembles something but is not a constellation. An asterism can be part of a constellation, like the Big Dipper is part of Ursa Major, or an asterism can be a grouping that comprises stars from several constellations like the Summer Triangle. The Winter Hexagon is made up of six stars, the faintest star being magnitude 1.29. So this is easy to spot in most skies unless you're in a very light polluted area. Regardless of where you are, you'll want your eyes to get dark adapted as this will make spotting fainter stars and objects much easier. After going outside, avoid any bright lights as well as your phone screen and give your eyes 10 to 15 minutes to allow your pupils to dilate and for the rod cells, which are the cells in your eyes that are sensitive to faint light, to activate. To see the winter hexagon, you'll want to go outside as it's getting dark. Once dark adapted, look for Sirius, the brightest star in the night sky which will be about 20 degrees east of due south and about 30 degrees above the horizon at the start of the month. By the end of the month, Sirius will be about 15 degrees west of south by nightfall. From Sirius, you'll look off to the west about 25 degrees and up about 10 degrees and you'll spot bright white Rigel in the constellation Orion. This is the second star of the hexagon. From there, look about 20 degrees north and west of Rigel, and you'll see the reddish star Aldebaran in the constellation Taurus, the third star in the hexagon. The fourth star, Capella, is nearly overhead. From Capella, you'll go to Pollux, one of the twins in Gemini, which is about 35 degrees south and east of Capella. Now from Pollux, go about 25 degrees south to Procyon in the constellation Canis Minor and then back to Sirius and you'll complete the hexagon. Some say it looks like a football, but to me it looks like an elongated hexagon. Even though it's made up of six stars, the winter hexagon contains parts of nine constellations. Canis Major, the larger dog, Lepus, the hare, Eridanus, the river, Orion, the hunter, Taurus the bull, Auriga the charioteer, Gemini the twins, Canis Minor the lesser dog, and Monoceros the unicorn. The hexagon is easy to spot and it's a great tool to help you learn the constellations within it. Speaking of learning the constellations, in the previous episode of this podcast, I had the pleasure of interviewing my old friend, stargazer Steve Dodson. In our discussion, Steve talked about planispheres and how to use them. While I won't explain using them here, there are several sources 
where you can buy a laminated planisphere for as little as $10 online. You can also find them in museum stores. But if you want to, you can make one for the cost of paper and ink. Visit the website inthesky.org. That's I-N-T-H-E-S-K-Y-dot-org-slash-planosphere-slash-index-dot-P-H-P. Once there, select your latitude within the nearest five degrees and download the kit. If you have cardstock and a laminator, you can get years of use out of this great device. Thank you to Dominic Ford for creating and sharing this great resource. Hopefully, you're armed with a planisphere now, and you'll be able to find the constellations and objects that we're going to explore in this episode. Let's start with the constellation Monoceros, the unicorn. Having a planisphere will help you to find Monoceros, as its brightest star is magnitude 3.93. It's best to get away from bright lights to spot this constellation. However, while it doesn't contain any bright stars, there are many gems within this constellation. The most famous object within Monoceros is the Rosette Nebula. This is a large H2 region, and it is associated with the open cluster NGC 2244, which is located in the center of the rosette. Both the cluster and the nebula are about 5,000 light-years from Earth, and the nebula measures around 130 light-years in diameter. The gas that the nebula is made up of has roughly the mass of 10,000 suns. This is an active star-forming region, and there are roughly 2,500 stars within the nebula itself. On an interesting side note, the Rosette Nebula is the official state astronomical object for the state of Oklahoma. You can easily spot the Rosette from dark skies with binoculars. It will appear as a grayish circular shape, larger than the full moon, and the brightest stars in the cluster within it will be easy to spot. In a telescope at low power, you should be able to see the nebula as long as you are under dark skies. I've been able to see the rosette in a 70 millimeter refractor. Using a larger telescope, you can start to make out some of the brighter and darker patches within the nebula. To find the rosette, start at Betelgeuse in Orion and sweep east about 10 degrees and you should be looking right at the rosette. The nebula glows at magnitude six but it is spread out over an area of more than a degree of sky, so it will appear faint. NGC 2244, the open cluster at the center of the nebula, is also classified as Caldwell 50, as well as the satellite cluster. The cluster is made up of mostly hot O-type stars, and its members are less than five million years old. It is easy to spot as it has several 6th through 8th magnitude stars that form two lines that are almost parallel to each other. The cluster shines with a total magnitude of 4.8 and spans 24 arc minutes. You can easily spot the cluster in binoculars. In a telescope, you'll be able to resolve dozens of stars within the cluster. After you've enjoyed the rosette and the cluster within it, you will enjoy this next object. We're moving to the only Messier object within Monoceros, 
M50, an open cluster, sometimes referred to as the heart-shaped cluster. The cluster is made up of between 500 and 600 stars and glows with a combined magnitude of 5.9 and spans about a quarter of a degree. You can locate the cluster in binoculars by starting at Sirius and sweeping about 9.5 degrees northeast through Beta Canis Majoris and you'll have the cluster near the center of your binoculars. It will appear as a small grainy patch of light. In a telescope you'll be able to resolve many of the cluster's stars. How many can you see? Another interestingly named open cluster in Monoceros is NGC 2301 which is known as the Great Bird Cluster or Hagrid's Dragon Cluster. At around 165 million years old, this cluster shines with a combined magnitude of 6.0. It's very easy to spot in binoculars, and it is beautiful in a telescope. Measuring about 12 arc minutes in diameter, you can use moderate magnification to explore the cluster's members. Several red and blue stars are visible within the cluster, adding to its beauty. To locate the great bird, start at the rosette and sweep 6 degrees east and 3 degrees south. The last object that we'll explore in Monoceros is NGC 2264. This object is actually comprised of two separate objects, an open cluster and an emission nebula. The cluster is commonly referred to as the Christmas tree cluster, as its brighter stars appear to form the outline of a Christmas tree with the brightest star at the bottom of the tree. The nebula, which appears red in photographs, features the aptly named Cone Nebula, a cone-shaped patch of dark nebula near what would be the top of the tree. Visually, from a dark location with an 8-inch telescope, I've been able to pick out some of the brighter parts of the nebula, but the cluster is what makes this object such a joy to observe visually. The cluster spans 20 arc minutes and glows at magnitude 3.9. To locate this pair, start at the rosette and sweep 5 degrees north and you should see the cluster. Moving out of Monoceros, we'll take a look at the constellation Canis Minor, the lesser dog. The brightest star in the constellation is Procyon, which shines brightly at magnitude 0.4. Procyon the eighth brightest star in the night sky is a double star with a faint white dwarf companion. It is one of the closest stars to Earth at a distance of only 11.46 light years. The only other bright star in Canis Minor is Gomesa. This star glows at magnitude 2.85 and is approximately 160 light years away from Earth. Canis Minor holds several faint galaxies the brightest being magnitude 13.3. It is also one of the smallest constellations, ranking in size at number 71 of the 88 recognized constellations. The last constellation that we'll look at this month is Cancer the Crab. This constellation, like Monoceros, doesn't hold any bright stars. The brightest stars within its boundaries is the star Tarf, which shines at magnitude 3.5. The other star of note in Cancer is Acellus Australis, which glows at magnitude 3.9. While Cancer lacks bright stars, it does have two beautiful open clusters to enjoy. 
The showpiece object in this constellation is M44, which is also known as the Beehive Cluster, or Precipice, which is Latin for manger. The Beehive is between 520 and 610 light-years from Earth, and it formed about 600 million years ago. The cluster shines at magnitude 3.7 and spans just over 95 minutes of arc. It is big and can be seen with the naked eye easily from a dark location. Binoculars or a telescope at low power will show dozens of member stars within the cluster. Galileo was able to observe the beehive in 1609 and was able to resolve 40 stars within the cluster. To locate the beehive, sweep 11 degrees east-northeast from Tarf to Ocellus Australis, and then sweep about 1.5 degrees north, and you'll be looking right at M44. In 2016, two planets were discovered orbiting a star within the cluster, adding to the wonders of what this gem holds. Cancer holds another Messe object to enjoy, M67, also known as the GoldenEye Cluster. This is one of the oldest open clusters that we can observe. It is estimated to be between 3.2 and 5 billion years old. While M67 is not the oldest open cluster related to the Milky Way, it is the closest one to us as far as ancient clusters go, lying between 2600 and 2900 light years from Earth. Because of its age, this is one of the most studied open clusters in the sky. It is comprised of about 500 stars, of which about 100 are sun-like G stars. The cluster spans half a degree and glows at magnitude 6.1. It is easy to spot in binoculars as a mottled patch of light the size of the moon, but M67 really shines in a telescope. Even a modest telescope will show dozens of member stars within the cluster. To locate M67, sweep about 8 degrees south and 1 degrees east of the Beehive Cluster and you should spot M67. I hope that you will go out and explore some of the wonders that we went over. Well, that's all for this episode. Thank you so much for tuning in and I hope that you found our time together to be fun and helpful. If you have questions or episode suggestions, please email us at astroguypodcast at gmail.com or leave us a text message or voicemail at 973-404-0380. If you're not already a member, please join the Astro Guy Podcast group on Facebook. You'll find other members, videos, blogs, and other useful information there for your enjoyment. You can also visit our YouTube channel, The Astro Guy Podcast, for past episodes and other surprises. Thank you again for listening, and may your skies be clear. And as always, Carpe Noctum, seize the night. I'm Wayne Zool, and this was The Astro Guy Podcast. Thank you for listening. As always, your questions, comments, and suggestions are welcome. Keep wondering. Keep your eyes on the sky. Have fun. Carpe Noctum. Seize the night.
ます。